Happy New Year, everyone. This episode is a bit different, as you'll see. I want to point out that everything we discuss here involves preclinical research. There are no FDA-approved therapies here, and the case studies mentioned, as my guest points out, are entirely anecdotal. Having said that, I think you will find the approach, the journey, and the lessons learned in this story informative. Patrick Moran is the founder, chairman, and CEO of Pebble Life Sciences, which he'll explain in a moment. Patrick, welcome to CC Life Sciences. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, we got connected somehow. You found me or uh, through Sal Buscemi and the Family yep. Office Club, right? Today, we're going to talk about Pebble Life Science and how you break through the cloud of cannabis claims that are all over the place and be taken seriously. So... With that hint, tell us, tell our listeners what Pebble Life Science is all about and what you're working on. Uh, so we're an early stage biopharma. Uh, we are focused on biologics. Uh, cannabinoids happen to be one of them or one of those groups. Uh, we are uh, hyper-focused on treatment-resistant ovarian cancer. All right. So that's uh, pretty high level. Let, and we'll get back to that research later. Let's dive into moving this cannabis compound forward. Tell us about your journey from supplements into biotech. How did you get started? So uh, Pebble Life Science is the subsidiary of the original holding company for the very first mover of the state of Texas in the legal cannabis industry. So that company had raised on the premise of first open and legal and transparent Texas-based cannabis company. Two years later, almost three years later, it spun out uh, what became Pebble Life Science to be then part of the uh, medical marijuana uh, uh, licensed community inside of Texas. Uh, the state governor choked down that program permanently uh, and we started to pivot and that happened about the time uh, that the uh, U.S. Uh, Farm Bill allowed us to start taking uh, all of the constituents inside of the hemp plant and applying, you know, pharmaceutical rigor to them and starting to research them on a federally legal basis. And so we dove into that. That's where we thought the industry would go or where the promises that the early industry had made would logically go. And so we thought we were just going in the direction that was the next logical step. Uh, our first uh, activities were uh, neurological conditions uh, on a, the basis of a hypothesis uh, for uh, anti-inflammation. And so as we did those early case studies, we started seeing some really exceptional results uh, with, we were looking to outperform the first-in-class Epidiolex, which is basically uh, a cannabinoid isolate. Uh, and so we put together, we researched and pulled the top six uh, most beneficial agents out of the out of the hemp plant um, and uh, all non-psychotropic uh, and applied those to beat the first-in-class Epidiolex. We did a case study of seven children with severe uh, seizure disorders and we had phenomenal results. Uh, and so as those results came in, the cannabis industry was starting to make decisions that we didn't agree with. And so all of it accelerated what became a, a pivot into uh, the life science uh, arena. And so, yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the anti epid 
Help uh, me with that one. Epidiolex is the Epidiolex. First, is the first in class for many cannabinoid medication. Yeah. Yeah. But what also got my attention is how did the farm bill relate to this thing? So the 2018 Farm Bill legalized hemp, uh, and uh, part of that definition is anything under 0.3%, uh, 0.3%, three-tenths of 1% of THC. And because as they understood it at the time and what everybody had agreed on or that the, the intent of the law was is that if it was psychotropic, it was going to get worked out uh, in different legislation. And if it was non-psychotropic, it went part of the hemp bill. So we took that as the opportunity to honor our word and to continue developing medications from everything but uh, the psychotropic aspects of uh, cannabis. And so it opened up everything that is de derived from the hemp plant. Uh, all the, There's 140 plus uh, cannabinoids. Most of them are unknown or unmarketed. Uh, 40 plus terpenes uh, that can occur inside the plant. And we started culling those. Uh, so 200, over 200 total. We put together a criteria, anti-inflammatory, non-psychotropic, um, uh, multiple uh, uh, sourcing within the general market, uh, scalable as it was, so that we could develop pharmaceutical grade. Uh, and we ended up with six, six agents out of the 200 plus that we then moved into these neurological studies, which are uh, ultimately aimed at oncology. So, Yeah, so, um, so the Farm Bill essentially is, is saying... For certain strains, I presume, you can grow fields of hemp. Is that how I'm... Correct. So it was intended. The farm, the farm bill is exactly... If it's under 0.3%, and this is for you know, pharmaceutical development like we've done, this is for industrial hemp. Um, there's right. no purpose. There's no gain of having THC in industrial hemp. Right. So right. it is for these arenas that have uh, honestly been neglected. Uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, what, it, what the intent was. And so then what most folks did with that is figure out how to make CBD is derived from hemp. CBD is derived from the plant, period, but it's derived from hemp uh, as well. And so most folks on the supplement side or in the cannabis arena started figuring out how to get people high by uh, synthetic derivatives of CBD so that they could follow that technically legal, but not what was intended line. So, and so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got it. All right. So now let's go back to the Epidiolex. Uh, so it's essentially CBD Epi isolate and suspension, uh, but a company named GW Pharma uh, developed it for Dravet syndrome. And they're now, uh, that company was acquired by Jazz Pharmaceuticals and they distribute that very worthwhile drug in 29 countries currently. So, yeah. All right. Let's go from there to other neurological indications and then the transition to um, ovarian cancer, like there's uh, a, there was a path there, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, um, so we were looking because there was hard data from GW Pharmaceuticals developing that drug. Uh, we knew that there was, if there were any truth to all the crazy claims that were coming from the cannabis industry about being able to kill cancer, et cetera. And with me having done the research and coming from a medical family and background, knowing that inflammation is shared on a spectrum 
uh, with oncologic conditions. So severe neurological disorders, you can sort of see it as a spectrum, uh, and cancer have the through line of an inflammation. So if there were any truth to the idea that some level of cannabinoid or, bi or biologics could kill cancer, that it had to be tied to the inflammation that was also specifically relevant to Dravet syndrome and these uh, um, uh, neurological, severe neurological disorders that Epidiolex was being aimed at. So that's what got us started. We ended up doing a total. We just are now in our 15th uh, case study. We built an infrastructure uh, within our company uh, in order to be able to do validated case studies that would still be anecdotal, but uh, you know had a, a level of third party uh, proving, a level of third party authenticity so that uh, um, we could at least attract uh, serious clinical research in the long term. Uh, and so we went from those Dravet syndrome kids, uh, PANDAS, uh, which is another uh, severe neurological disorders with children, CDKL5, uh, to PTSD. And then we started doing, we st and just kept refining our protocols. We went originally from like a hemp, peppermint, uh, and ginger extract to then, well, what are the active agents within those plants to new prototypes that just kept getting more and more tuned in. Uh, and with that, we got more sophisticated in our case studies. And so the aggregate of all those got us talking to clinical, got us doing exactly what we had hoped they would do, which is talking to serious clinical research people. Uh, that ended up in, gosh, I don't remember how many, but we had a lot of meetings. This was back in 2019. We had an awful lot of meetings along those lines. That eventually led to a meeting with uh, our now C our CSO that's been with us since late 2019, uh, Dr. Carola Leshner. Uh, she's amazing. She had done biologics, oncology work similar, uh, and we brought her on. She started talking in her circles about the work we were doing, uh, and that led to uh, MD Anderson. They took a notice and... Uh, we got an email one day that, hey, the head of gynecological cancer would be interested in uh, working with you guys. And so uh, that's it. And that was the, that was the pathway that kind of moved us from those uh, early case studies and evolving prototypes into the it's now three years in standing relationship with uh, MD Anderson that's expanded and uh, gotten a little bit more sophisticated now. So Yeah, no, that's a cool story. I'm curious when you talk about those case studies that are essentially outside of a clinical trial, but is it because it's a botanical and it's that you're able to do these things? I guess, like, how do you even get permission to say, we're going to test this compound in someone? Well, so um, they are, or, it's, you know, the, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to Well, I guess, you know, it's the history of, uh, you know, cannabis more broadly is, you know, the pharmacology is known regardless whether it's THC or CBD or any other compound that's in there has obviously been consumed before, right. right? And so you're just taking a subset of that and saying, or how does it work? Like, well, so that was it. I mean, we were in a, you know, and, and I don't know that we would approach it that way today in 2023, but in 2019, we were in a unique position where we were working with plant constituents that, like you said, throughout the as long as we've been as long as humans have been able to write and keep a record, there's been a record of use of cannabis in some way. So we knew that there was a safety profile as long as you were dealing with natural constituents and not synthetics of the cannabis plant. 
Um, but there was no clinical validation. And in between was this giant gap with all these, you know, outlandish claims of all these, but that some of them persisted for decades about cancer and the rest of it. And so the, the, the thing that we had to solve in-house was how do you bridge that gap? Right. How do we start to do that? And so we were working. That's why with the Dravet syndrome kids, you know, those kids are seizing 30 to 60 times a day. The, the unmet need there is astounding uh, as far as <clears throat> effective drugs and the, the pain of not only the child, but uh, everyone surrounding it is intense. And so we knew that we were working with safe constituents. I've always been the first guinea pig of any prototype that we've ever developed. Uh, we knew that we had a history of working with agents that were, you know, this huge history, um, and we had to bridge that gap. And the thing that was making that gap worse were crazy, I, don't, I hate to use the word crazy, but claims that had no clinical substance to them and that, and when you pushed, kind of melted away and then they'd pop back up over here. And so how, how, do, we, how do we bridge that gap? Uh, and it, it was, you know, developing uh, uh, an in-house system that would have a level of uh, validation and the, the patients getting permission to do it. I mean, it was an over-the-counter supplement. Uh, federal law had legalized it. There's, there's, uh, there's no psychotropic effect. You know, we know we've got a high safety profile uh, and we were functioning under dosing. By that time, GW Pharma has released Epidiolex on the market. CBD isolate has some toxicities. And we knew because we knew we understood the entourage effect that we could stay at lower dosing than what their threshold was for CBD. So if we stay below that dosing, now we really are within a safety threshold that later MD Anderson proved out and that we were exactly right, but that absolutely with all putting all these cards on the tables, family were like, yeah, I mean, this is a heck of a lot better than anything else that we're you know dealing with. Uh, and so, I mean, that was it. It was to fill a gap that uh, that existed to get us from point A to point B and no one had seemed to be able to figure out how to do it. And we never intended and we've never presented them to be more than um, uh, anecdotal. Ultimately, they're still anecdotal, but they have helped inform optimization incredibly. Um, they have helped to inform clinical direction, and I would say both save us money and, more importantly, time uh, and you know efficiency, hyper-focus on our targets um, by doing these... Uh, uh, by doing these case studies and getting direct feedback. I'm always the point person uh, with when we work with a patient. And so uh, you, you get feedback. I don't know how you would, honestly, I don't know how you would move forward without it. We're starting to see in the life sciences forum, uh, you're starting to see a, a, the word or the term um, uh, real, world, real world data bandied about a bit. And that's essentially what we're doing um, and what we've what we've been doing for four years now. So, yeah. Yep. Tell us about your relationship with the national cancer Institute and the applicant assistance program and maybe explain yeah, that. Program, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, very blessed, uh, to fall into that. And that's a, for us, that is, uh, what we call within our corporate culture of pebbles, corporate culture falling up. So, um, we had done these early case studies uh, we'd done these early case studies. We'd gotten great feedback. I was giving talks at Texas Medical Center to uh, outsourcing clinical trial uh, conferences and uh, that kind of thing. And it led to a proactive invitation from the Cancer Prevention Institute of Texas for us to apply for a grant, um, for a drug development grant here in Texas. 
And so that's what we did. We spent about two years and almost six figures targeting for that for a specific application window and getting the data in and everything. And we applied for that. And uh, one of the feedback that we got at the time, and I'll say up front that Seaport has gone through a wonderful evolution and uh, our experience was would not be the experience that you would experience today. Uh, but in 2020, one of our feedbacks was that we were basically drug dealers uh, for having any hand on cannabinoids, period. And that if this particular reviewer had anything to do with it, we would, you know, our product would never see the light of day uh, in Texas. And so we took that, we took that hard. Our researchers took it harder. They were um, infuriated. Uh, we were pretty used to, you know, being called silly names and being painted with green paint and all the rest of that. So we were just moving on. Our legal counsel at the time said, well, you know, you can take all this. The other three reviewers were great. And like I said, I want to reiterate, Seaport has gone through a major evolution since then, and it's a whole different game. And so they're, they're well worth uh, exploring. But at the time, it wasn't. And our attorney said, one of our attorneys said, you know, why don't you guys take all this great feedback and all these notes and contact NCI. And so we reached out to NCI. We got a great point person with them. Uh, we explained the technology, went through the process, and she uh, um, sponsored us basically is what the NCI does for uh, the parent company NIH or the parent entity NIH's applicant assistance program. Uh, we got it. Um, uh, we got it with the NCI sponsorship and our entire executive team. So our C-suite went through a 10-week one-to-one mentoring program. It was phenomenal. Uh, I, I can't, I, I, I talked often about it, it you know, the, the value of what we learned was, would absolutely be in the six figures uh, of consulting fees um, and much more time. But we got a uh, uh, 10-week one-to-one hyper-focus uh, uh, of how to apply for federal grants, uh, not just NIH, not just for our specific uh, NCI work, um, but, you know, sort of the greater spectrum and, and specifically for NIH and then helping us target the rest of it. And so at the end of that, uh, we got our first, the conclusion of that mentorship is very practical and you submit your first uh, SBIR grant. And so we did that. That was September of 22. Uh, and we got great feedback, great notes. Uh, it was a wonderful experience and it, uh, it definitely helped Pebble uh, level up to the next level and um, um, and start doing our final product optimization uh, and teeing up for our uh, clinicals where we're headed now. So, yeah. So that program is all about submitting a grant, not so much about or or was it about how to prepare for clinical trials? But presumably, the grant is what helped you do that. Correct, because the grant is for funding clinical trials. So what the what the program is doing, what AAP is doing, is teaching you how to apply, which is very different <laughs> than preparing for clinicals, um, yeah. although they're related. So you had to, we, I mean, it was all hands on deck, our MD Anderson team, uh, our CRO, like, you know, everybody had to submit. We had to fine line all the way from our CFO and the, line by line budget all the way through uh, the full clinical experience had it was part of that application process. So not only did you have to do it and do that effectively and professionally, but then you had to submit that to them and go, OK, this is how you now package all of this to say it in NIH language 
for a successful submission. So it's a complex, I mean, I'm, I, I don't exaggerate when I say our executive team collectively. So we had three on board, I, I mean, 60 hours a week total, like of FTE hours, you know, me 20, uh, our COO 20, our um, uh, head of business development 20. Like, I mean, it was, there was no kidding around. It was, it was all hands on deck for the 10 weeks, but that's what they do. You're, you're getting, you're going out and gathering all that, bringing it back properly packaged. You're getting some guidance on a little bit on the how of that, but you're expected to, you know, you learn as you go. Uh, and then they package it. So, yeah. Yeah. So how did you land on ovarian cancer after the neurological and other case studies? Uh, so that was strategic. Um, and that was me following the leads of the people that we brought on to be better at something than I am. Uh, it was driven by our CSO and our um, MD Anderson research team. Uh, we are one of our closest collaborators. PI on the uh, MD Anderson side is Dr. Neil Sood. He's the head of gynecological cancer at MD Anderson. Uh, our early data when we went into them, so the aggregate of all these case studies, you know, they basically came forward and said, you know, you want to try and kill some cancer? And we're like, yeah, we, you know, we'll, we'll do that. So uh, uh, they started suggesting we came in for basic in vitro and in vivo with mice uh, preclinical studies to be gearing up for, you know, an, uh, uh, um, ultimately an FDA uh, approval journey. Uh, and they were getting back great data. Uh, and they started applying. So our mouse studies, they decided to focus in on treatment resistant ovarian cancer strains. And so the mice studies that came back, uh, came back, uh, really there were, they did all treatment resistant strains. Uh, there were 10 different ones tested. We, you know, ran well with all of them, but then there were four that it really just knocked it out of the park. Uh, and so that, um, you know, was compelling. Of course, it's a solid tumor cancer. And so that applies across many ones, but you already had that data. And then they came back and they said, well, why don't we do an RPPA analysis, which is an analysis that, that basically tests the constituents of our product against the constituents of, uh, this is an oversimplification, but the constituents of, of uh, common chemotherapies. And let's see if you have any synergies, you know, is there anything that we need to stay away from? And it turned out that we had really strong symptoms. So in addition to our own cancer killing efficacy, the product or the, the prototype at the time also had a high efficacy or high synergy with multiple chemotherapies that were frequently used for seven solid tumor cancers, including ovarian. So then now we've got this list of seven cancers that it's like, wow, if you tune in and optimize, you could be really effective at these seven, but you know, that's a, in, in oncology, that's a real, that's too wide of a net. You have to hyper-focus. You got a long way to go with the FDA. Uh, and so then it just became strategy. Uh, ovarian is very well studied, yet there are, uh, the unmet need is incredible. The standard of care uh, is way, way out of date. And so uh, it's a late stage diagnosis, even though it's well studied. Uh, the standard of care is basically, it, it, they don't approach it as palliative, but ultimately it ends up being somewhat palliative to buy a little bit of uh, progression-free time, um, but uh, it is in dire need of an update. And so strategically, we knew that if we hyper-focused on ovarian and that we already had an edge uh, because of those mice studies, that uh, any data falling off of that would serve multiple other cancers, and we could also be developing uh, neurological platforms or neurological programs 
uh, off of uh, all the data that came off of ovarian. So we have just continued to hyper-focus on it. That's the first one we're um, uh, geared on taking to market, uh, but all that data is being collected as we go for uh, other programs. So Yeah, so that pretty much what you just said answers the next question, but if you want, say a little bit more about bringing pharma rigor to your approach. Uh, so we, from day one, uh, literally in 2018, we started seeking out, there weren't many at the time, um, uh, but GMP certified uh, manufacturing. Uh, we held, and this has gotten easier over time, um, uh, but we have always held pharmaceutical variants, which is uh, a maximum of 10% off of what is uh, uh, of uh, what is listed. And so we require, all our individual ingredients require uh, certificates of analysis before we accept. It all has to maintain GMP certified hand-to-hand uh, uh, -hand and documentation and the rest of it. And then at the end of every single batch, it's all tested again. Uh, and if it doesn't, you know, so we've never had a purity issue because of our upfront screening, uh, of course, is so rigorous. So we still test for purity at the end of every batch. Uh, just to make sure nothing happened in the manufacturing process, but then we're also uh, making sure that we have our pharmaceutical variants within the relationship or the ratios uh, of the ingredients. And so we we just don't accept it if it, it's not. And you, you know the the definition of botanical is somehow in modern life come to mean you know you don't need to be efficient, you don't need to be consistent. Uh, and of course, that's what's keeping it out of being effective medications in a lot of ways. And so for us, we just don't accept that as an excuse. So uh, botanical and being consistent uh, and, uh, um, uh, and accurate are, are not mutually exclusive. So we've run them together and we've done it for years now. So, Okay, so you're looking for an OTC and over-the-counter approval, am I right? Well, so that was a misnomer. I said that at a family yeah. office club event. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, thank you for helping me. So uh, um, what I was trying to explain, and you know, I'm half a layman and, and will always be uh, sort of in that window. And so it's how to communicate well. Uh, what, what I was getting at and what I was trying to communicate is, as you've pointed out, uh, uh, OTC works against sort of the argument of efficacy or the argument of... Um, uh, of having been clinically proven. And of course, that's obviously not what we're doing. We, we're striving for the exact opposite. For us, though, we've got, because there is the, uh, uh, because we don't work with anything that's scheduled and we've been able to eliminate CBD from our protocol. So, you know, obviously we, we THC, it's, we consider anything that's psychotropic and adverse effect. Um, CBD is, uh, does have some toxicities at high level dosing, uh, which was proven out by the Epidiolex study. So it's a schedule five. So we've been able to work now where we're getting optimized uh, results uh, and we've moved beyond uh, cannabinoids and we're in other biologics as well, including uh, fungals. Uh, and so we've been able to uh, move beyond any scheduling or any scheduled agents. And so because the agents are unscheduled, not on the DEA, uh, list and because they're unregulated and we have a high anticipation or there's a high, I would say that our predictability is very high that we're going to have a high safety ratio. I mean, uh, you know, every agent that we're working with has a long history. And so it's just whether or not there's a toxicity created in combination or some sort of a canceling out. Uh, but anticipating high safety profile 
staying off of the uh, uh, scheduled substances uh, for the DEA puts us on an FDA fast track for oncology drugs. Uh, and our case studies are starting to make a pretty good argument. And of course, we're going in to prove this clinically. Uh, but what we're seeing is an argument for us to be a frontline uh, monotherapy uh, in addition to uh, adjuvant therapies uh, uh, coming out of the gate. And so that's what I was trying to get to is uh, as we go through this process, you should see a wider and wider TAM, uh, total addressable market um, on a uh, accelerated basis uh, based on the safety profile. So. Right. So not a scheduled substance, but when you and if you get FDA approval, it will be a prescribed therapy for specific indications and then hopefully more down the line. Correct. That's it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. So last question, what have you learned that would be helpful to any biotech startup, even if they're not in the cannabis space? Oh, gosh. So there's a bunch and, and I could jabber on. I, I would say that uh, something that we've been experiencing and, and is kind of top of head is don't let anyone else tell you your value uh, lower or higher. So, uh, you know, we were told, you know, specifically, of course, because of uh, history with cannabinoids, we've been told because of our early stage uh, in general, uh, you know, they're for, for all sorts of different reasons that have nothing to do with uh, working with biologics or the rest of it of, hey, you know, those guys are too big. They're, they're that's, you know, too high. And we've been told the opposite. Uh, I've been I've been undervalued and we've been overvalued where somebody popped up at a road show and said, this is a unicorn and it's going to be worth a billion dollars and yada, yada, yada. And then 45 minutes later, you find out he's trying to sell me on funding him monthly to, to crowdsource us or something, you know, just and so my, and we all have to deal with this out in the market. Right. And so what I would say is do your own homework. Uh, people are always going to be testing your ego to, to either inflate it or deflate it and look for uh, triggers that they can um, that they can act on. So do your own homework, uh, build valuation based on data, uh, the novelty of what you've developed, and more importantly, the corporate culture, the corporate integrity, the corporate execution. Uh, um, you know, right now, Charlie Munger is in the news because he just passed, uh, and so he's an easy one to cite. But those lessons, the corporate lessons that are through all of the writings of the shareholder, Berkshire shareholder letters and the... Dow, according to Charlie, and all the rest of those that talk about just those simple principles, um, those are the things that you're going to build value on, and you need to find people that recognize those, and comp and, and that's the complement, not the basis, the complement that goes with the data, uh, and, and that's where you build your value. Have a sense of your own value. Don't let people inflate it. Don't let people deflate it. Um, it is possible to network to the high we had not only did we not have any network in this arena we had a negative stigma coming through this or into yeah. this arena <laughs> to begin with and we have been able to network um to some of the most exciting companies in life science uh on the planet and uh and and do that and engage directly with senior management and so uh it's possible um you can get yourself there by doing your homework presenting it yourself um, getting the conversation. If the conversation is you are in fact not far enough along, then the next logical question is, all right, well, if we're here and you need us here, what are the gaps in between so that we can come back to you in two years and have that conversation? And we have done that multiple times. And I'll tell you that roadmap again, it's like the NIH experience. You, you can't, 
There's no amount of money that pays for that. But don't let a guy here tell you what's going on up here. You go find out up here yourself and you can fill in all the gaps. And what's interesting is you'll find out what's keeping those people almost by default, you start to realize what's keeping those people where they are and why they're trying to keep you from moving on up. So anyway, that's uh, that would be my two cents from kind of what we've been learning in the um, uh, in this last uh, growth phase. And, um, you know, keep going. Just don't quit. I, I think that answer is fascinating. So I had the, the conversation with the other person I met through Sal this week, and it'll come up when we do the interview. But... In the course of our conversation, science is hard. People can be harder. <laughs> when you talk about the people who are testing you and looking for your triggers and trying to maybe get something out of you without giving you anything of value back, um, that's yeah. to me, that's just, you know, that's another level of neurobiology going on there. No, man. You know, Chris, honestly, you're, I mean, you're right. And the data in the clinic is, is in the context that you just brought it up is kind of a safe space because it's a hurdle. It's a clear hurdle. Like, you know, oh, the hurdle's high. Yeah, the hurdle's high. You better prepare for it. But you can prepare for it and it's objective. Uh, and uh, out in the arena um, where you're getting hit with this other stuff, it's, it's, it's challenging. And what you realize as you go through it, you can feel it. You can feel the stress. It's a visceral response of is I have to, you know, in the moment you have to interact with this person, they become something of a threshold guardian one way or another. Um, and if I answer wrong, everything I've worked for could be gone and in this guy's pocket and you're just another meal. Like you're, you're just another meal and you go on and he goes on and you're done. Uh, and your team's done and what you've built is done and the, and the lives that can be saved uh, because of your technology are done. So it is in the moment. It's it is it's it's it, it is its own um, challenge. It's its own skill set, um, but it's also acquirable. And, you know, you I think you trust your gut. Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm a prayerful person and, and I have a lot of faith and I study. Uh, I study a lot of people who did it right. So, um, yeah. Yeah, good on you. Patrick Morenz, thank you so much. I think um, you and I had this conversation, but I've hesitated to do a cannabis episode forever or because of, same as you, having your brand changed in some way. Whether you're working in cannabis or not, I think people are going to learn a lot from this episode. So thank you so much. Well, I'm grateful, Chris. Thank you for having me, man. It's great to be here. So I've enjoyed my, it too. Thank you. My pleasure. 